You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine at University of Illinois Chicago, Dr. Jay Goldstein. Welcome. Helicobacter pylori has been known since the 1990s and is associated with ulcer disease. However, there are still many questions regarding its infection, treatment, and follow-up. Joining us today to discuss Helicobacter pylori, is it really still a problem in the United States, is Dr. David Pura, Professor of Medicine at the University of Virginia School of Medicine and past president of the AGA. Welcome, Dr. Pura. Well, thank you very much, Jay. It's a fascinating topic. I remember H. pylori back in the early 90s, and we were still thinking about what it caused. And we've made a lot of progress. There's a journal about helicobacter. There's articles about helicobacter. But tell us, is helicobacter still a problem in the United States? You know, it is, Jay. I think it's quite regional. For example, in Virginia, where I am now, it's not a huge problem. Most of the people that are of a younger generation no longer are becoming infected. But obviously, metropolitan areas in Chicago and areas in New York and areas in the West and Texas, where there's a larger population, especially a large immigrant population, yeah, it's still going to be a major problem. What is the problem? Well, people are infected with the bacteria when they're children, and people that are born in the United States or developed countries aren't getting infected, but people who are born and raised in other parts of the world where it's still prevalent, you know, do have a high likelihood of being infected and can be susceptible to illnesses that are associated with infection later on in life. Well, you mentioned that people are infected in childhood. How is it transmitted? Well, that's a good question, Jay. I mean, no one knows for sure. We think it's either fecal-oral or oral-oral in its source. It is something that's acquired early in childhood, usually by age 5 or 6. In fact, if you don't get it by age 5 or 6, it's unlikely that you're going to get it. Actually, there are two populations that seem to be susceptible to H. pylori, and those are young children and gastroenterologists. And what do young children and gastroenterologists have in common? Well, Well, we play with poop and vomit. So we come in contact with things that most people don't come in contact with. Is it because mom kissed us? Well, I don't think so. There probably is an association with infected parents, but it may be occasionally maternally transmitted, but usually it's from sibling to sibling or children playing together in, at a very young age in, a, in, say, a daycare center or something like that. What about socioeconomic status? Is that a predictor of infection? Yeah, it is. We used to joke there's one thing that protects you against stage pylori, and that's money. If you're rich, you don't get it no matter where you're born in the world. So clearly there's an association with lower socioeconomic status, crowded living conditions. The children are raised in houses where they share beds. Obviously in less developed countries where they don't have access to indoor plumbing, things like that, uh, it can be a major issue. Now that we know how people get infected, what disease does it cause? Or diseases? Yeah, well, obviously the major condition that has been associated with H. pylori has been uh, ulcer disease. In fact, that's why Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, the two doctors that sort of rediscovered H. pylori, were given the Nobel Prize because of its association with ulcer disease. In fact, 
we recognize that many ulcers are really infectious. And if you can get rid of the infection, you can cure the ulcer. It doesn't come back. But other conditions are associated with H. pylori. In fact, gastric cancer, cancer of the stomach, is epidemic in many areas of the world. It's the second leading cause of cancer death. And H. pylori has been associated with stomach cancer. In fact, the World Health Organization has declared H. pylori a group one carcinogen. Some people who are infected will have dyspepsia without actually evidence of an ulcer. There's some evidence that refractory iron deficiency anemia and certain hematologic conditions, malt lymphoma, for example, a unusual lymphoma of the stomach can be caused by H. pylori. So there's a potpourri of conditions, but the one that is best characterized, or actually probably the two that are best characterized, are uh, duodenal ulcers and stomach cancer. Well, now that you've identified the region, you specifically said duodenal ulcer. What about gastric ulcers? Well, gastric ulcers also are probably associated with H. pylori in a number of individuals. But, Jay, we recognize now that most ulcers that are occurring in the stomach are actually going to be related to non-steroidal drugs or aspirin. Now, H. pylori probably increases the risk of developing an NSAID-related ulcer, but most of the ulcers, I'm sure, and you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean the ulcers you're seeing too, I'm sure most of them are H. pylori negative and are related to NSAIDs. Well, interesting for our listeners, I just want to make a point and clarify something. We know non-steroidals and aspirin cause ulcers. We know H. pylori causes ulcers. Does this account for the universe of ulcer disease, or are there other causes? I'm sure that there are other causes. In fact, now that we've gotten rid of H. pylori and we can control non-steroidals or at least give people medications that reduce the risk or use safer non-steroidals, we still do see ulcers. So there are non-NSAID, non-H. pylori-related ulcers. There are unusual infections, CMV, for example, especially in an immunocompromised individual, We can see ulcers occasionally in things like Crohn's disease or other infectious diseases. So there are unusual causes. There's an idiopathic cause of ulcer disease that is characterized by high acid secretion and not really Zollinger-Ellison syndrome because they don't have very high gastrin levels, but there is a hypersecretory condition that occasionally can be associated with ulcers in addition. Well, a common thing that we hear about is GERD. Is GERD caused by H. pylori, or is there an association between H. pylori and GERD? That's a real controversial issue, sort of a bag of worms. In the United States, I think it's fair to say that GERD and H. pylori are not related, and I don't think there's any reason to look for H. pylori in patients that have fairly characteristic symptoms of reflux. In other parts of the world where people are treated for H. pylori, They've had impaired acid secretion for many years. And when you get rid of the H. pylori, for example, in you know, an Asian population, oftentimes that acid secretion will return to normal or even occasionally supernormal levels. And if someone is susceptible to GERD in that area of the world, then they may develop or have new onset of symptoms. So in parts of the world, there may be an association, but I think it's fair to say to our listeners In the U.S., generally speaking, H. pylori and GERD are not related. In fact, there may be some evidence that H. pylori protects against reflux. Well, we've talked a little bit about 
what H. pylori causes, now the big question is, if it's associated with cancer and it's associated with ulcer disease, should we go out and screen the world for H. pylori? People thought that that was something we should be doing. But, you know, there's a downside for that because the treatment, although it's well tolerated in most individuals, can be associated with some side effects. I think we should limit our testing really to specific clinical indications. Okay. What are those clinical indications? For example, if somebody has a known ulcer, if we diagnose an ulcer in somebody, then I think it's appropriate to test them for H. pylori. If they've had a documented ulcer in the past, then I think that's reasonable. Obviously, if they are having an endoscopy procedure done and they have something that looks abnormal and we biopsy it and it comes back malt lymphoma, then those people are candidates for treatment. There is some suggestion in areas of the world where the prevalence of H. pylori may be a little bit higher that an appropriate approach to the dyspeptic patient might start with testing for H. pylori. But in low prevalence areas, it really doesn't make any sense. I'll give you an example, Jay. The data would suggest that you need to treat 15 patients who are positive for H. pylori to get rid of their dyspeptic symptoms. Now, in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I practice, my background prevalence of H. pylori is about 20%. So I have 100 dyspeptic people that come into my office. I test all 100 for H. pylori. I find maybe 15 or 20 that test positive. I treat those patients, and one of them is going to have symptom resolution. So I've tested 100 patients to maybe get rid of symptoms in one. So for that reason, in low prevalence areas of infection, it probably doesn't make any clinical or economic sense to test dyspeptic patients for HP. Well, I'm going to give you a case example, and it's a common one that I encounter. You are scoping somebody, upper endoscopy, for dyspepsia. You go down. There is no ulcer seen. Somebody says, doesn't that antrum look a little red? And you say, yes, it looks like gastritis. Should someone biopsy at that point? I don't biopsy at that point. For me, gastritis is not a change in color. For me, gastritis has to actually have mucosal breaks. I don't routinely biopsy the mucosa, even if it's a little bit red. Now, other people would say, gee, you should, because you've gone to all the trouble and effort of endoscoping this patient, and somebody's going to ask, is H. pylori there? You can biopsy him. Well, really, probably the most cost-effective endoscopic test for H. pylori is pulling out the scope and doing a stool test or a breath test. (laughs) because it's actually going to be less expensive in the long run. So if you really need to know about H. pylori, I probably would go with one of the non-invasive tests. All right. Well, I think we can spend the whole day talking about this, but we have to bring this to a close. I'd like to thank my guest from the University of Virginia School of Medicine, Dr. David Pura, for joining us. Dr. Pura, thank you very much for being our guest on GI Insight. Jay, my pleasure. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA.
Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is proud to sponsor this important and quality programming for ReachMD listeners. Takeda does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by the AGA Institute. Based in Deerfield, Illinois, Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is a wholly owned subsidiary of Takeda Pharmaceutical Company Limited, the largest pharmaceutical company in Japan. In the United States, Takeda markets products for diabetes, insomnia, wakefulness, and gastroenterology, and is developing products in the areas of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other conditions. Takeda is committed to striving toward better health for individuals and progress in medicine by developing superior pharmaceutical products. To learn more about the company and its products, visit www.tpna.com.